the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. I'm your host, Cooper Cherry. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Today's guest is C. Derek Varn, a host of Pop the Left podcast, Mortal Science podcast, poet, editor, teacher, part of the Zero Book staff as well. Uh, Derek and I discussed pretty much 1968 and, you know, kind of that general period of history, a number of different thinkers from situationists, Deleuze, Derrida, etc., but... Uh, just a great overall episode. Really enjoyed it. So here is C. Derek Varn. It's awesome to have you. So. Yeah. It's just funny because um, I've taught government, but I've actually like never, I've taken law classes, obviously, because I studied to be a lawyer at one point, but I've actually never taken a political science class in my life because I don't think the field should exist. So <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. I, I can go <laughs> so, along with that. I think I, ha- I haven't either. My background, I've got an under a BA in English and sociology and then I got an MA in, in mass communication with, oh. uh, with new media being the focus. So like I graduated in like what, 2009. Oh, okay. Well, well, back when they were still doing, I was, I started off in mass communication and, and, um, and in anthropology moved over to philosophy, but didn't, I just had a bunch of credits. So I compiled them together into an yeah. anthropolo like liberal studies degree. Right. And then I got a BA in English literature proper and a minor in Oh, nice. Creative writing. And then um, I have way too many other degrees, but none of them are actually <laughs> related to what I talked to you guys about. Like right. most of it's educational theory or poetry. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I got some exposure in one of my shit. It might've even been an English, I think it was an English class mm-hmm. that they uh, discussed. They mentioned Derrida a little bit and this was like 2001. So I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm like 37 just for reference. Um, oh yeah. You're two years younger than me. So Got a little intro to Derrida there that way, and that kind of I was like, "What this?" Like I was very, I was defensive <laughs> whenever I heard. Like I didn't like it at first, mm-hmm. uh, so that, but it like got me interested. So I ended up reading this random kind of little survey booklet that was at the college. I don't even remember what the hell the title was, but it was like it had kind of a survey of postmodernism, and it even re- included like Richard Rorty. And then that really got my my mind going, and I think I've been kind of hooked on postmodernism, poststructuralism, ever since. And that's kind of where I'm coming from in terms of my, I guess, development into the left. Because I would, I grew up on a cattle ranch in Texas. Oh, okay. <laughs> so no exposure to Marxism. I mean, my family would like jokingly say that's a communist plot or that's a commie plot. Like that's mm-hmm. that's the kind of milieu that that I grew up in. And, uh, you know, my, my grandfather would be like, if there were protests going on, he'd be like, oh, he'd be gritting his teeth. He'd be like, oh, they should shoot those damn protesters or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, mean I grew up in, um, in Georgia, so not, 
Not, uh, my parents were more apolitical than even that, but, um, although my stepdad was a Ross Perot supporter, so, um, it's really all I remember, but the, you know, they, they were Obama supporters too. So who knows? Like kind of just the low information, aimless Chad voter. Um, (laughs) right. Yeah. That's kind of the same vibe. My, my fam, my uncle in particular was a big Ross Perot guy. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, I was like, shit, what? nine years old at that age. so i had like i got like a ross perot sticker and put that on my trapper keeper or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was those were this all right so you're you're kind of from an anarchist me and we're going to talk about like the front the french late late 60s and the, um maybe the transition to post-structuralism and anarchism out of the french left because i think well the thing is though those two things aren't quite sympathetic right, like right copacetic there's a relationship certainly but like a a lot of the biggest post-structuralists were non-marxist quasi-maoist which is a weird like if you look at Foucault's politics for example he retained a lot of um like the Sartre and Althusserian like love of third world stuff and like supporting supporting revolutions on a kind of maoist bent but they really wasn't actually that cohesive with his with his political writings at all it actually right. i mean it actually just sort of seems arbitrary yeah uh foucault is probably why i mean honestly that's sort of what got me into anarchism i think mm-hmm. back back then when i was kind of dipping my toes into into post-structuralism like in grad school um because i had i wrote a i was really interested i there was a like chris anderson the editor of wired magazine he wrote the mm-hmm. long tail and in like one little like last sentence of one of the chapters, he said that Al Qaeda was in the long tail of like state violence or political violence or something like that. And that I was like, holy shit, that's that's fucking brilliant. Uh, so I kind of took that and ran with that and looked into sort of how like the EZLN and um, I guess Al Qaeda as well, like as as case studies of kind of using, you know, online media message mm-hmm. boards, et cetera, to kind of facilitate this form of, of resistance, whatever that may be. And I think at the time, like the biggest source that I could find that was directly addressing that topic was a, was a RAND <laughs> corporation study. That was like the only, you know, kind of serious literature that had been done on the topic at the time. And they called it net war. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it reminds me of, um, when you get into like complex studies, you have to read a lot of fairly right-wing stuff, even if you're not white-wing sympathetic. But so, you know, fifth-generation warfare analysis, I mean, literally John Dolan, um, you know, w- a.k.a. under Gary Betcher, his uh, paleocon alter ego. Although, you know, the, the alter ego has long since broken down and there's really no real difference in their opinions now. <laughs> like, like, he doesn't bother really separating those out. But for a while, he was the only like person who was left adjacent. I mean, you know, like Dolan's hard to pin down politically, but um, who really studied this stuff? And I come out coming out of paleoconservatism, knew a lot of the stuff, and also knew a lot of leaderless resistance. The, the, one of the things I will say about leaderless resistance, though, and the pro- one of the problems with it, and this is not a critique of anarchism, it's just 
it is more effective as a terror tactic than it is as a way to be, like yeah. organize anything, even decentralizedly. And I mean, don't don't pull punches in terms of anarchism. I think that that's fine. Like, I'm not I'm not gonna I don't take it personally or anything like that. I'm just that's kind of loosely I think where I'm at. But I have a bunch of different weird influences. I think right now I've been obsessed with psychoanalysis for the last probably shit like two two years or so. And so I really, what I enjoy the most, what gets me excited in terms of theory or thought or what what have you is, is like this kind of melding of semiotics, political economy and psychoanalysis mm-hmm. and sort of how those interact and like that kind of, I don't know, I've heard it called like a libidinal materialism. Yeah. Something that like makes that. Sense. It, to me, it, you know, it, to me, it's something like post-postmodernism. <laughs> like, <laughs> You know, none of those terms are really anything like they're such moving signifiers, right? But um, when you look at how anarchist thought has developed, I mean, one of the things about anarchist thought, it, we can get into that for a second, is in America, it's actually kind of in bad shape, even though there's still a fair amount of anarchists. I think the, you know, Albert Graeber, to some degree, Chomsky-style anarchism the Albert and Graybert style was so, it was so into this kind of performative occupation space that when Occupy got stalled, it seemed to have lost like a decade's worth of momentum, and then right. people just flooded into Marxist movements. And yeah, and so that was interesting. And then you have um, you have like the Chomsky the Chomsky wing, but the Chomsky wing is so close to social democracy anyway, particularly now. Exactly right that it's borderline indistinguishable. You know, a lot of the anarchists I know and work with, they don't really have a theoretical background. And because of that, and I don't, I don't even actually say this as like an insult, they seem to be a kind of like the progressive end of liberalism on steroids. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Like, I can kind of see that. And I mean, sometimes I feel like maybe that's, my, that's where I am sort of. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm trying to interrogate that, I think, within, within myself, but... I don't know. I feel like I'm <laughs> maybe there are some vestiges of that kind of liberal stuff, but I don't know. I think that's kind of waning at least hopefully. <laughs> yeah. I mean, your listeners would have a hard time placing me, but I'll put myself on the Marxist spectrum. I am on the center right end of the left communist tradition, which, okay. which is kind of confused people. <laughs> right. But, <yeah>. like, <laughs> but I'm somewhere between, um, I sometimes call myself a post-Leninist. Like, I don't really believe okay. in, like, vanguard form- formations. I actually right. do think the state is inherently classed in a way that if you don't abolish the state, and actually I tend to follow, the, you know, like, uh, there's this scholar of Marxism, uh, Eric Von Rie, who pointed out if you actually look at, if you take the critique of, of the Goethe program as a plan and not just an imminent critique, and I'm, this will take me an hour to explain (laughs) but just if you take it as what marx actually believed and not just him using the lasallian socialist framework um and critiquing it you realize that even that uh even under marx's criterion that the state withers away really really early and so in lenin's conception of it the state withers away towards the very end Right, so it's one of the last things to fall away. It's pretty clear if you're reading the critique of the Berkeley program where he actually, the only time he states this out in a stage theory, that somewhere like the state's going to be gone before even you've gone from socialism to communism. Like it'll be pretty early on because Marx thought that states are necessarily classed. Like they, they are classed by their nature. There's right. no way out of that. And if you have a state, a worker state, 
all you've done is change the ruling class of that state. Right. You have not actually devolved right. it. And when we get to like, because I, you know, you told me you wanted to talk about the relationship between folk socialism and anarchism in France. And listening to your entrance, I get why you're Team France. I'm more Team Germany myself. <laughs> are you? A, are you a Hegelian? Uh, no, actually, not, not really. Oh, interesting. Okay, I'm a, I'm a post-Hegelian in the sense that like. I take stuff like Brandom very seriously and I take Marx very seriously, but I do not think Marx is just a simple Hegelian. Right. And I also think there's a lot of mystical thought in Hegelianism that gets formalized away when translated into English. I I agree. So that's, that's one of my biggest uh, bones to pick with Hegel is it sounds so much like I grew up in a kind of fundamentalist Christian, like Southern Baptist sort of milieu. And, and so a lot of it feels very much in that same direction. So it ought to, it like, you know, I have this like knee jerk reaction against it. Well, I mean, like when I read, when I read like the weird Swabian dialect of German that Hegel's writing in, and Hegel's one of the few German philosophers I can say, reading him in German doesn't necessarily make him easier. <laughs> um, in fact, what it did to me is I real, but it did make me realize something that every word Hegel selected had both a secular and religious meaning. Every single one. <laughs> and depending on how it's translated, you can play up one side or the other. But like when you say like world spirit and absolute, those ideas are clearly related to, to, to theology. Yeah. And there's also some late medieval hermetic stuff that's going into the way he's framing, the way he's recasting Kantian dialectics. Right. Okay. Um, and I, I think that's pretty unassailable, although modern Hegelians just kind of laugh at me when I bring this up. But I'm like, it's if you do the research, the secularization of he- Hegelian thought actually was like a Prussian like university project. It was, a, you know, kind of a deliberate mission of the of the quote unquote early scientific university of Prussia under Bismarck. And so, so like there was a movement in Germany to do this too. And it wasn't just the left Hegelians, like the right Hegelians also wanted a more scientific Hegelian framework, even though they were also retaining separately from that, like the theology, the commitment to Lutheranism. I, I mean, Hegel says he was an Orthodox Lutheran. I think he was probably actually formally speaking a heretic, but like it's still, yeah, it reads like religious stuff. The, and I think one of the things that fascinates me, but also is like maddening about structuralism, you're like structural psychoanalysis, like Lacan. One is between you and me and all your listeners, I guess. I think Lacan's maybe full shit, but um, <laughs> that's my uh, that's my hero too. So, <laughs> so yeah, um, but, I, but also, that, let me oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, even if I think even if Lacan was full of shit, he was so committed. Like, his like the whole thing you get you still even if he was just grifting that's one hell of a grift (laughs) yeah i mean i mean i don't think actually i don't think he was grifting i think what i think he was trying to do was work out some of the thick description of psychoanalysis in an even more abstract way partly because of the influence of a specific kind of hegelianism on him i think that mostly goes back to kojeve right and you know like I don't know. I tend to like Bataille and the, the oh, weird right. occultic, yeah. weird occultic, almost Stalinist, but not quite. <laughs> like it's just yeah. like also yeah. Nietzschean, obsessed with human, crazy person. Right. Who 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 was you know Lacan stole his wife too. So, <laughs> but um, I think that's an interesting sort of heritage that shows up in the French stuff. And what's interesting about the French about uh, French critical theory, particularly 
is that it goes in so many crazy directions at once. I mean, that's where post-structuralism really comes in. Right. But even like before that, when you're still dealing with like structuralism and existentialism, when you think about existentialism, somehow you have people who combined Heideggerian assumptions about being with absolute free will, almost and Randian levels of free will, and became leftist and of particular leftist dissident Maoist. That's a little nutty when you actually try <laughs> to like draw the line. And so yeah. there was this fecundity in France in the 60s. Part of it had to do with the fact, um, you know, part of what I study actually related to my job is the structure of educational institutions. I don't, you know, I'm just a teacher these days, but I've studied a lot of this stuff a lot, very, very formally. And if you read a book by David Blacker, it's called The Falling Rate of Learning. He goes into this in detail. But in France and Western Europe in general, not so. it wasn't so much in Germany because of, a, um, because of things having to do with fixing after the war, but definitely in the countries that were not quite as, you know, on the front lines as far as like the Cold War goes. Right. You had full employment. Part of how full employment was maintained or pretty close, it was like 2% unemployment or something. It was extending education out. And that had been seen, you know, as a kind of, that had been done in America as a side effect of the GI Bill, and it was picked up in there, in there too. One of the things that led to 68 was just, you know, was students and workers collaborating because there was a, there was like, you went up to like 4 or 5% unemployment, which, which after the 80s and most of the West is normalized. Yeah. Like, it seems so low, but that's what was going on. And I think what that led to, ironically, is you had a lot of people who would have been outside of academia priorly. Right. And for, for good and ill, this led to a lot of, a lot, I mean, you even think about like um, a lot of the, the personalities of people who we know of from this time period say even even before post-structuralism back in back in highly structuralism but like Camus is not someone that would have normally been afforded that kind of education so the educational expanded had created this like large French literary and philosophical culture basically to keep people studying I mean even in the technical sense and studying in a way that kept them out of the workplace <laughs> during the same time period because the, the, the business cycle, while it was still in place, it was not nearly as erratic as it was supposed to be under Marxist critique as understood by sort of orthodox Marxism. So when I, like when I put myself on the Marxist spectrum, for example, I said I was, um, I was like the center right of the of left communism, which is like the, which is, some people would say is to the left the most anarchist. Like we talk about the abolition of the value form altogether. And I just like, well, occasionally you have interact with states <laughs> like i have some left com sympathies i mean i'm not yeah i mean that's kind of where i, I think know, some kind of, of like anything anything like libertarian socialism you know situationist kind of mm. elements um whatever in that kind of ball of anarchism and left well i mean and after 68 what happens in 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 leftism and i mean we're, we're jumping ahead of a period here but like <laughs> you have a resurgence of anarchism or resurgence of left communism I think a lot of the later postmodernists and post-structuralists, frankly, it was not a reactionary turn, but it was a turn that was dealing with a kind of conservatism when none of these things could deliver what they promised. Right. Um, and so you had a cynicism kind of sneak into the analysis that was, that was natural. And I mean, I hate to say it, but kind of necessary, even if I think 
some of it is Baudrillard's search for authenticity is almost reactionary, but yeah. like, so I think that's what is partly coming out of here. But I think also from a structural rareness, when you read something like the beach beneath the street, which is great thing about oh, these ideas, like such situationalist. A, yeah. Such a great book. Thank you for that recommendation. That, that was a lot of fun. So I should also mention like going back to Hegel and like, Mm-hmm. Uh, thinkers that are currently working with Hegel. So I'm recording this evening with Reza Negrastrani mm-hmm. about his book, Intelligence and Spirit. <laughs> so uh, that'll be interesting. So when you look at, to me, when you look at that that thing, what what happened there, in my mind, is you had you had a bunch of things, that a bunch of crises that kind of hit at once. You had this slight tick back in employment um, and this new sort of Gaullist, Fordist thing that they had going on was not, was beginning to slow down. You had you had anger over French colonialism in Northern Africa, legitimately. You had the humanization of the former Stalinist bureaucracy. And what was interesting about that, all right, is so um, de-Stalinization would have made, and humanism would have made uh, formal French communism more palatable to a lot of people. But it, it actually kind of did the opposite because they had to explain why the business cycle wasn't going the way it was supposed to go. And they took these deve- pro-bourgeois development stances that were actually very similar to the social democratic stances in the 19-teens and 20s. And so this alienated a lot of like young workers who were also like, well, why are you supporting colonialism? Like, why are you... But the formal French parties, I mean, you know stood against it. Lacan was, was stood against it actually. And after that, you had, you had the situationalists who were mostly left communists. Some were kind of, some of the situationalists were pretty much anarchists, but most of them were a kind of left communist. There were also French versions of Berdiga's currents. So Berdiga was a Italian left communist who was kind of removed. He was, he was a leader of the PCI and actually stood up to Stalin in person, but was removed from the, uh, to, my Italian pronunciation is often bad, but Togliardi, the, 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 the leader of the PCIS, the Gramsci, kind of remo- accused him of being a fascist collaborator and remo- erased his history in the party. During this time period, he retreated from politics for the most part, but did kind of form what he considered a remnant organization of left communists um, in Italy. And they had a lot of influence in France, too. So after 68, those groups developed. They developed actually into one of the first strains of primitivism which is interesting and also a little bit strange. Like if you know Jacques Kamat. I'm not familiar. Jacques Kamat, who wrote against civilization, had, had came to the conclusion after 68 that capitalism had become overly decadent and stagnated, but, could, but was no longer a subject to the business cycle. And the only way out of its controlling apparatuses was to opt out entirely. And by opt out entirely, we don't mean tune in and drop out. I mean, go to the woods and give up on all technology. Like rewilding and shit like that. Yeah, that's where that comes from. So it, weirdly, even though it's associated with anarchists, it comes out of um, a kind of left communist trend. I mean, in America, oddly, it doesn't have quite the same history. It actually comes out of a weird really kind of absolutist reading of Adorno. But in France, it comes out of these um, left communist movements. They sort of don't go into the academy. And then who remains in the academy is like these post-structuralists who start doubting the narrative of Marxism. Like that becomes, but they don't totally drop its politics. They drop its framework. You know, Foucault retains a lot of Althusser there. I mean, like, and Althusser is probably one of my least favorite Marxists as a side note, but like, like Foucault does some interesting things with it. I think Foucault does more with Althusser than Althusser does. But all the Marxism starts getting bracketed out and removed. Yeah. Um, the existentialist sort of 
they, they you know they kind of seem like they seem like the establishment radicalism they kind of side first with the Khrushchevites then with with, with sort of official mal malistum not the most radical ones of malistum um so they start losing influence and also people start realizing that their critiques of like dialectics meant that they weren't really Marxist either. I mean, like in a, in a sense that like, like existential, like if you read the critique of dialectical reasoning or whatever, like they've actually taken out a lot of the core, you know, conceptions of, of, of Marxist logic out of the equation. So of course, to me, you could develop it in different directions at this point. What's interesting also about French theory, though, is French theory becomes more popular in the late 70s and 80s in America than it actually even really is in France. Um, it also has a lot of influence through psychoanalysis in Latin America. So like Lacanian psychoanalysis has a, gets a lot of that work gets taken up in left wing circles in Latin America. But that so, so those trends together seem to indicate that you kind of have a breakdown because there's a whole lot of things that Marxism should have predicted. And to be fair to Marxism, <laughs> if you'd have done a, a proper Marxist analysis without being tied to like political ramifications and states that actually existed at the time, you probably could have figured a lot of this stuff out in Hamlet. But because they were staying to, also they were having to pick sides in these geopolitical worlds that were very, very not abstract. Yeah. They couldn't, they weren't flexible enough to deal with conditions as they actually were on the ground. They couldn't change their class analysis. They were always seeming to just kind of adjust things ad hoc. And that really discredited Marxism in France. And you had this just flurry of different weirdo sects. I mean, communization theory comes out of this time period. It's for like, it's first instantiations are in France. Primitivism comes out of this time period kind of post-situationism, post-modernism in the Leotardian sense, in the Baudrillardian sense, which I do see a slightly conservative, um, post-structuralism emerges out of this. So you just have this fecundity of like people dealing with the fact that people forget that the, the initial skepticism of post-structuralism was not just based on a skepticism about narratives in the abstract. It was also based on the fact that so many narratives have fallen down for contingent reasons that were not accounted for and it, thus, people started digging for new ways of dealing with that contingency. Right. That's definitely what was going on with Althusser, and he's a structuralist. But like his focus on like Spinozian physics or whatever, and going into a very weird place to try to resciencify Marxism. But <laughs> like that's coming out of a sense that like the official party lines of this time period have been just utterly wrong. And it also looks like that even the radical, you know, communists who were sort of loyal oppositionists to the Gagala state. I mean, they were quasi-loyal. Um, you know, they, they have been part of the coalition of resistance, so there was a history there, but they were also diametrically opposed. They were also seen as just becoming too soft on official French society. And so this led to just a preparation of ideas, but those ideas get dropped. What, what's interesting that I think is not studied a lot in America, but is studied a lot in France, is these do like get dropped in, like French philosophy actually becomes fairly conservative in the late 70s, early 80s with a different set of philosophers than is commonly studied in English. In English, we tend to study like the high period of post-structuralism and we kind of end there. And I mean, like we forget that like, for example, Derrida left France for a very long time I mean, like yeah you know he he didn't necessarily he went back to france obviously and started philosophical programs there later but like if you look at his legacy i mean some of it was explicitly brought over to america with him here i mean i think was it which was it princeton he went to 
Um, I can't remember. I know he was. I used to like know UC... a lot of this better. I haven't. I've been asked yeah. to talk about Daredevil. It was like you see Sarah Santa Cruz eventually, but I can't remember. Yeah, I think the first like whatever that nineteen was it? I think sixty five or something. Whenever he kind of had that, uh, there was a symposium or something at Harvard where he kind of launched deconstruction. Yeah. Right well, as yeah. culturalism but, is kind of like coming to America. It was it was sixty seven, I believe, is when that really happened. And what's interesting is that like. That means it's it's coming to America almost contemporaneous with it happening in France too. Right. I mean, like um, he gets brought. I can't. He taught at two different schools in, in the United States during like the eighties and nineties, and I can't remember which two. He's also still working in France. What's interesting to me about Derrida, though, I mean, like, is um, I can't. You know, obviously, you were talking about how I, I used to teach about him, and it's funny to me. I went to school just a little bit before you did in the aughts, and Derrida was all over the place, and like. If you go to programs now, it's like it's been erased. I mean, it's strange. Like if you look at like comps reading lists for for um, for PhDs in critical theory in English, I mean, I'm sure he's still there, but you'll see a lot more like Badu, um, Deleuze, and so so like I haven't really quite understood why. Yeah, yeah, he's sort of fallen out of favor to some degree. Like why Derrida has fallen, like Derrida deconstruction has fallen out of favor, but Deleuzeanism hasn't. Yeah, um, it's not like Deleuze is like a whole lot easier to read. I mean, I do <laughs> oh, often feel <laughs> like once you get out of the like linguistic terrorism of what Derrida <laughs> is doing by enacting the philosophy upon you, and you realize like, oh, this book was act- like once I realized that he's just enacting it on me through the through this book, I could probably understand this in a paragraph. But the process of him enacting it on you through the way he's writing is part of the point. Right. So the thing is, though, what what do you make of Derrida's? Really, I mean, have you read Specters of Marx? Like, I have not. That's all? like the big one that I'm haven't gotten around to. I often so I have basically like my reading list is driven almost entirely by the podcast. Yeah, that makes so sense. It's I like I'm, I'm like cram, I'm like cramming every week. I'm like this this week I was reading like two books. Um, <laughs> and my week was at work was a nightmare too. So I'm like uh, <laughs> falling asleep with like two books in my hands. Like. Uh, <laughs> But yeah. I'm definitely interested to read it. Um, particularly, yeah, I think I, he mentions he mentions Sterner, who I'm all, I'm also kind of a, a fan of as well to some degree. Yeah, Sterner, like Sterner, the most radical of radical Hegelians, who like starts like casting doubts on anything. <laughs> My favorite Sterner joke is a spook is a spook. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, so Derrida is interesting though because it's hard for me to know. One of the things that has harm deconstruction, I do think, is not so much Derrida, but in Paul Deman and in Heidegger, like yeah. their overlap with the, with fascism is problematic. Um, and Derrida did seem to be somewhat blind to it. It's interesting given his background, because I'm 99% sure he was Algerian. Yeah, he was. And was never really, I don't think he ever was a member of any like official communist parties or even though I think he had, you know, left his sympathies. I don't think he was ever even a member versus like Foucault was definitely a member for a time. Right. I don't know about Deleuze. Guattari was a trot for a while. Right. So, no, I think he's like, he's like, a, like maybe like Paul Racour, who's another one who just wasn't really, they were political, but not political. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Derrida got recommendations of like, I mean, interestingly, when you look at his career, he is, he is actually promoted by Marxists like Gene Hoplite and Althusser are the people who got him his job yeah, as yeah. support. But like, it's, it was, um, he was never, I don't, he was never actually a Marxist. I think that comes up in Spectres of Marx too, although he does think that Marx's contribution is super important. Yeah. 
But what's interesting to me is he also wasn't like he was not, he was he was definitely associated with the left, but a lot of his disciples weren't. And so trying to parse his politics is actually quite difficult. Was he kind of a an anarchist? Was he kind of a radical left liberal? Like it's really hard to know. He does seem to have largely cosmopolitan sympathies, and so you know that's really hard to square with any kind of fascist project. But like I said, the demands sketchy history, and then like. Particularly now that we know, I mean, we've always kind of known about Heidegger. Like, yeah, I mean, like if you didn't know that, I mean, but um, particularly now that the Black Book has been translated, it's even it's really hard to deny. But it, it is interesting his uh, relation to to the left seems more nebulous, and and in a way, maybe that's another thing that that uh, has caused that that particular brand deconstructive end of post post structuralism to kind of fall out of favor because it. Even when it is not, you know, associated with sketch, it never seems politically like devoted. And like some of, like when you also look at like Derrida's fans in the United States and his big boosters in English philosophy, most of them were fairly bourgeois liberally. So it's hard to parse what. One of the things I think it may be unfairly thrown at a lot of the post structuralists. I mean, one is, for example, is yeah, Foucault was of the left, although towards the end of his life, he was fo- he was f- deliberately flirting with neoliberal ideas. Yeah. Um, that's you know not not just undeniable. Like the finally got when we finally started getting the lect- the the lectures translated that you know it was people started like noticing that would he had gone in a right-wing direction i don't i don't know i kind of tend not to think so but i also think people forget how restrictive a lot of official like social democratic parties and stuff felt because they they also basically embrace fordism and social control um and so a lot of like early social democracies like liberational promise was just not delivered on at all. Yeah. And so one of the things that I like to, I, I'm trying to come up with a coherent theory on this <laughs> about why certain political tendencies come up when they do. Yeah. Like why, why right now, for example, in the United States, are both forms of predominant leftism somewhat national sympathetic, even if they're anti-American? So what do I mean by that? So what we've seen is a resurgence of MLs online. And in some oh, say, I see them in the real world too, actually, but, but they, they are like hyper marginal. They're like 0.2% of the population or something. Right. Um, but the fact we see them at all as a, as a, as a stream is kind of new. Like when I used to meet Stalin apologists in the yeah. aughts, they were almost all fascists. You didn't meet a lot of left-wing Stalin apologists. Huh. Um, you, you would meet Nosbols. Those people I hardly ever meet now. People get accused of it all the time, but those projects tend to be okay with bourgeois, with, well, po, well, I'll be honest, I think is bourgeois nation states, just not the U.S. So bourgeois nation states on the, on the quote unquote periphery of capital, although honestly saying China's on the, even the semi-periphery of capitalism is kind of funny. Right. Because it's the second producer, has more billionaires in the United States. The Gini coefficient's actually higher than the U.S. It is a more unequal society. But it has reduced a lot of poverty. So you have those guys, you know. And also, weirdly, like the Chinistanism. Like when I met Maoist um, 10, 15 years ago, they opposed, the, they opposed the current Chinese state. That's less and less true. Which is also strange because right. like the Chinese state hasn't socialized a whole lot more. Then it's become more nationalist. Conversely... Do you know about the Angela Nagel scandals and whatnot? Yeah, 
I yeah, looked, I a little bit. I paid books. some attention. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, worked, I knew. Yeah, I worked <laughs> for Cedar Books, so obviously. I actually don't think all of Angela's work even now is bad, but there is one of the things I think, one of the reasons why I think she gets canceled so much is she says some things that are implied in social democracy out loud. Yeah. And it freaks people out, but it also is implied in social democracy. Like if you think you can run socialism off of a tax off of a tax base, yeah, you need profits to do that. And if also you have to know who's in the country to allocate resources from a tax, so completely open borders don't work for that. Yeah. Now I'm an internationalist communist. I don't think you. I don't think that's viable. I think eventually profits will go too low. You can't. You can't do that in the long run anyway. Like social democracy will always get into a bind that it can't get yeah. out of. But the bind is implied. So one of the things I've been trying to figure out, like what is different now than say in 68, where we see this resurgence of like two different kinds of, of basically opposing nationalist friendly internationalism. Like all these people are internationalist um, in some sense, yeah. but they are much more cozy with the nation state than even like Trotskyists were, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And definitely then like libertarian socialists are yeah. left communist are anarcho-syndicalists, the communist, you know, the communist adjacent ends of anarchism, which were way more dominant 10 years ago than they are now. I am trying to figure out what structural changes promotes these things and makes them fall in and out. And so looking at 68, when this stuff really emerges for the first time, um, and you see both the emergence of a strong of strong anti-revisionism too, like that also rem- comes out at the same time. So you have people doubling down on Stalinism in response to this as well. But um, what cycles prompt that? One of the things does seem to be related to where, like where you are in a business cycle and also like how much of the population is highly educated, but maybe underemployed. So that's something I think studying 68 is important to understand. I also what think about that par- what about that parallel now? Cause I think, right. You have with the explosion of student loans, right? So that that's creating, I think a very similar ground. It's actually a much more volatile ground. If you think about it, it's like, it's just, we're falling from, so there you're falling from full employment, relative job stability, a, you know, the boom of post-war buildup, creating a lot of temporary jobs, but it seemed like maybe the business cycle had been bought off. No, in retrospect, it was actually just the effects of large insertions of, of cash from a ca- from a, like an imperial project, you know, um, to Western Europe that also there was a lot of things that needed to be rebuilt so that you had stuff to, for people to do. Right. In the United States, you had a lot of, you had a lot of market capture because you were the largest man standing and didn't lose your productive capacity. And so there was just an illusion of, of abundance. Um, now you have, ironically, you know, um, when profits when profits decline, believe it or not, people tend to hoard wealth way more and get richer and richer and richer, and we're seeing that. Yeah. And what I mean by profits declining, commodity profits and profits on physical commodities have dropped pretty significantly. I mean, like, look at food. Why why do we need immigrant labor for food? It's because it's it, the commodity, the profit margins that are so low. That's true for almost all physical commodities. We've moved into kind of a rentier economy now, which is also something that's confusing. Like Marxists don't entirely know how to process that because they're focused primarily on commodities. And the rentier economy is dependent on the commodity economy, but it can generate a whole lot of seeming. What in Marxism we might call um, fictitious capital, what you just might call balance sheet capital if you're just doing, you know, a profit and loss report. And so we're seeing a lot of centralization like that. So right now we're, we're... 
we're kind of seeing the same thing, but on a different end of it. If you, um, a non-Marxist theorist is actually useful for this. He's not an anarchist either. He's just a, he's a history. He's a historical theorist, Peter Turchin, the most structuralist person in the world. I was going to warn you that there's lots of <laughs> equations, lots of historical comparisons, um, analogies from history, you know, stuff that would make Foucault like <laughs> his teeth will chatter if he was still alive. But, um, that so that he he draws out how we're in we're on a very similar secular cycle but we're actually in a downturn and that was the upturn of it so what the, you saw there was the end of the first upturn and what we're seeing now is a massive downturn where we've had three different we've had three jobless recovery business cycles um we've we've dealt with that by expanding education which ironically means we have more and more people educated to go into elite positions but less and less elite positions for them to go into like myself, right? Right. <laughs> you know I, mean, what I mean, it's like I'm I'm like 37 with an advanced degree, and I'm doing an entry level customer mm-hmm. service job, right? <laughs> right. So, like, you know, I I've been a professor, and now I'm a high school teacher. Like, it's just it's just stuff like that. Um, that you're gonna see a lot more of that. That actually un- destabilizes society. So, I think we will see. We might have another period of rapid ideological fecundity, but we also might have stagnation. Like, if you look at these cycles on long durée terms, like it can go in either direction. One of those two things happen. I'm hoping that the pressure leads to, so one of the ironies of having all these, you know, elites now thrown back on uh, elites and I'm using elites here. We're not elites. Like a lot of us come out of the working class. Finally, oh, yeah. are the first people allowed into these, the education right. these jobs, but we can't get them. So we go back, but now we have the education of someone who would have been. We're not necessarily as skilled for a variety of reasons. We go into that later, but so we're going to take these ideas out. So one of the things that you have seen that you didn't see, like in the nineties, when you had these fights, they were largely academic. Now I hear high schoolers using these kind of terms. They don't really understand them. They don't know where they come from, but they, they, they have, they're now because we are out in the general culture and not just hiding out in ivory towers. These ideas are too. Oh, for sure. Theory online. I mean, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. And I mean, high school kids are reading Deleuze and it, it's crazy, like the explosion of theory. And I mean, MLs too. I think like probably kids that are, you know, maybe five or six years younger than me, I think is where you see that transition. So maybe maybe it's Occupy that kind of generates that. Because like when I was in college, I mean, you I went to Texas State, like <laughs> in the heart of Texas, right? So that's pretty, you know, even sociology, we barely looked at Marx and there were like, it was an, sort of an afterthought. Yeah, I, what, the college funny. I got to, to, they booed Greg Palast. No, they booed Patch Adam off stage <laughs> mentioning a Greg Palace book in 2001. Huh. So like the idea of like the hyper liberal college campus was not something that I knew even oh, yeah, though same. I, even though like we were we were a liberal arts school. So and our faculty were I don't think there were any there weren't many out communists but there were like Zapatista, you know, uh, adjacent people and yeah, I had like no radical I had no radical teachers that would talk about Marx or or communism or anything, anarchism even. At yeah, all. <laughs> I knew I the only Marxist I knew, um, I knew in the anti-war movement, and they were international answer. And where I was at, and I, you know, I'm not going to name names because what I'm about to say is mean. They were so embarrassing and so naive on foreign politics that it actually pushed me towards the anti-war right, which is how I got involved in paleo conservatism for about three years. It was because, like, I was an I was an anti-war person. I was actually kind of a low-key anarchist, but I also didn't trust corporations, and so I didn't really know what to do with that because I yeah. couldn't really become like a libertarian. Right. And before I realized, you know, because I have some of a, 
like I have a partial Jewish background. So like before I realized that Pat Buchanan was kind of a closet anti-Semite, like, like it sounded pretty good because they were opposing all these wars that I also opposed. Right. And back then they'd also like people forget like at the battle for Seattle, Pat Buchanan was there. It was like just how like Alex Jones was still like trying to be sympathetic to leftists back in the Occupy days. It was very, there's this very weird milieu. That milieu seems dead now. I mean, oh, like, the, yeah, um, there's a very distinct dividing line. Yeah. I mean, like, and there's no, you know, um, even libertarians don't even really talk to, to left-wing anarchists the way they used to. So yeah, post-structuralism, I, I kind of want to see a revival of it, but I, I don't know where it's going to go. I mean, if you want to pivot towards that, cause like I'm very, as you can tell, I was talking to you, I'm very system thinking in my thought. Yeah. But I do think post-structuralism was very good at keeping us honest because there are times where this idea that somehow we're doing something like Isaac Asimov's psychohistory and like we can just predict everything. One, Marxists have a shit track record of that on their own. Like other than predicting crises, which like since we, you know, yeah. since we figured out the business cycle first. But like other than that. I actually wanted uh, to ask you about that with, uh, uh, with Trotskyites, uh, with their predict or Trotsky's predictions. All oh, the negative but, ones sort of coming coming true, but none of the positive positives. ones. Yeah, I just read that book. Uh, like the, have you seen the Posadas book? Oh, the one by um, Adam Gimlet yeah, of yeah. Uh, Antifada. Yeah. Um, I just read I've that a couple weeks ago, so it's kind of fresh in my mind. <laughs> Actually, it's a funny story. He, he they emailed me the same day you did. Um, <laughs> That's funny. And so, because I know a lot about Latin American Marxism, but not Argentinian Marxism, I know a lot more about Peru. In Mexico, where I used to live. Um, I would, so, um, Peru, like Shining Path, Gonzalo, yeah. kind of stuff? I used to date, uh, this is funny, but I used to date um, a woman who was a descendant of, of someone, in, a couple members of her family were in Shining Path and then turned against it later. And so she would have very interesting things to tell me. And when she would meet, when she would meet people like Marxists, so she's from LA, like Marxists who younger people she's you know she's she's slightly younger than us but still in her mid-30s and she would meet like these 20 these late 20 somethings who get obsessed with shining path and like radical circle and she would laugh at them like to their face and you know she was not an anti she was not an anti-marxist anti or anti-communist it wasn't any of that but she was just like no that's not you don't know what happened yeah. and um so yeah i know a lot from her and then doing my own studies because of her i know a lot about peru and from living in Mexico and interacting with a lot of stuff in Oaxaca, like in Oaxaca, particularly after those um, students disappeared, because that was when I was there. I know a fair amount about Mexican, Mexican Marxist movements as well, um, as well as their other indigenous, um, you know, syndicalist movements and stuff like that. I mean, like Mexican syndicalism and um, the, the sort of borderlines between left communism and anarchism in Mexico are actually super important because, you know, their revolution happened the same time as the Russian one. It obviously went a different way, but the the thought leaders were different. There were different kinds of anarchists more, more than, you know, because in Mexico, a lot of Marxism hadn't really gotten all that distilled there yet. And there were, oh, what's Flores? The two brothers. Um, oh, I know so much about these guys and their name just left me. <laughs> um, two of the... Two of the um, anarcho-syndicalist brothers like came 
came to some similar confusions as some of the early like Marxists did on their own with some influence from Marx, but it's unclear how much because it's not clear what was all even available in Mexico at the time, as far as I know. And so like those traditions are very interesting. I mean, you had the Zapatistas who can tra- you know, have some ideological trace all the way back to Zapata. Um, you have uh, sort of like the uh, quasi-bourgeois um, Northern Socialism, Pancho Villa, you know, and the, his hope for a, a Norteño state, which included what would be parts of the United States now. That stuff is also very interesting and influential there. So, you know, I, I studied a lot of that. But, but yeah, so yeah, g- sorry, I went on a tangent. <laughs> I'm bad about that. That's so good. What, I, I like those about? detours. I, I think that's fun. We were talking I was about, asking about Trotsky and like the, his, the I guess the uh, predictions... The predictions in the transitional program, which are a, okay, so they all have happened, but Frosky, well, not all of them. Most of the negative positions have happened, although if you read about them happening when he said they were going to happen, because he predicted they were going to happen in the 50s. Right, yeah. It is hilariously wrong, and Trotz avoid, (laughs) avoid, avoid, avoid talking about the predictions he makes in the beginning of that program. There's another thing. If you have you if you ever read Mac McNair, he's a neo Kalskiist. Um uh Neo Kalskiist critic of Lenin is still kind of Lenin friendly. Um he's in the C B uh C P G B P C I. So many communist parties of great britain you have to say all the after initials but um he's not you know and he he did this engagement with all these trot groups and he said you know the marcyites and the spartacists were the closest to right but but when you actually mapped up all the trot sectarian predictions about the soviet union and how it was going to fall and what was going to happen none of them were actually correct and what the effects were, either they didn't predict the fall correctly, or if they did, they didn't predict the outcome correctly. And he has said that trots, you know, trots get away because of their dissident position on Stalinism, particularly for a while, they looked vindicated by the fall of the Soviet Union. But people didn't really study that their predictions weren't all that accurate. And particularly in the 70s, when they got frustrated in Latin America, things got weird. Another thing in English-speaking world, when you look at Trotskyism, you can find a Trot equivalent to anything you can find in the rest of Marxism. There's Trotskyists who, who oppose identity politics. There's Trotskyists who support it. Sometimes the same tendency will flip radically on a dime. Um, the, I, the ISO was known for doing that. There are the, how they stood on America's role in imperialist wars varied dramatically depending on the tendency how even they feel about unions very dramatically depending on it i mean like the you know like the norfites the people who run the world socialist website are anti-union it's you know it's yeah there's some um, you know lenin was known for critiquing un- trade union consciousness and all that but he was not against unions existing <laughs> so it was those tendencies what well, i guess what i'm saying is like when you see a supposedly ideological tendency break down to where it mirrors something on everything else, like so you can no longer tell what it's unique, that shows you that people are not coping with either some predictions were wrong or, or what have you. I mean, another thing, if we're completely honest about Trotskyism, is a lot of what Trotsky critiques Stalin for, you know, right before his death, he also advocated. And a lot of the better policy in the Soviet Union, um, which came, that kept Stalin somewhat in check, came from Bakarin, who Trotsky thought was more dangerous to him than Stalin was, which was insane, objectively insane. So that also actually stopped 
the two people who were like, if you look at the history of fascism and the Marxist response to this, and this is also something at least like an anarchist resurgence is like how bad Marxism miscast fascism. The right opposition and the Trotskyist both kind of recognized fascism for what it was in a way that you know, third position is uh, third period Stalinism did not. And for your listeners who don't know all this Marxist jargon, third period Stalinism was the period before the breach of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, um, where the Stalinists had decided that uh, social Democrats were social fascist. And so siding with actual fascists was, was, you know, not going to be any different than working with capitalists. Therefore, you can make tactical agreements with them, even if it, even to suppress, you know, people who are arguably closer to you, but who you think are really just fascists anyway. The Social Democrats don't think that they can outmaneuver fascism, and the only people who are really kind of right about it, and neither one of them are completely right about it, are the left and the the, the right oppositionists, which are Bakarin's people. And then the, the, the left oppositionists, which are Trotsky's people, but those two groups hate each other so much, they can't come together to do anything. So they kind of both get liquidated. I mean, like, so of course, anarchism would look pretty good after that. You know, also you, the most obvious thing, because we know, because, you know, the one anarchist, well, the one socialist who was anarchist friendly, he wasn't an anarchist, but he was anarchist friendly. He was also CIA friendly, sadly, that we know about is that we read in high school is George Orwell. And he documents pretty well what happens in the Spanish Civil War. And so, you know, and the anarchists look pretty good in that, too, because the Stalinists are literally, we're fighting fascists, but we're also shooting, you know, we're shooting anarchist factions and liberal factions in a way that makes it easier for the fascists to win. So whose side are we really on? And that led to a massive, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of people just became like, you know, Cold War liberals, but a lot of people moved into anarchism. And I think that gets, France was weirdly outside of all that until the 68. So and that's the long and the short of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've gone all over, all over everywhere. You want to you ask me some distilled questions instead of letting me ramble on about history? Oh, no, your, your rants are good. Uh, I was just going to say to, one of the things you mentioned Mm-hmm. A while a while back was that uh that sort of rightward turn i think you you mentioned in kind of like the late 70s 80s yeah so on, on that string i just i have heard that uh even nick land sort of bemoaned deleuze and guattari's rightward turn from anti-oedipus to a thousand plateaus right which i think is the irony and the hilarity of that now is is so interesting you know when you read fang numina uh, have you read Fang Numina? The, I've, I've read a couple of the, the essays from Read it in chronological order. It's amazing how perceptive he is, but it's also once you get towards the end, the weird like Austrian Cthulhu, like Austrian <laughs> economics plus Chinese authoritarian plus Cthulhu beast love that you get in <laughs> post Fang Numina Nick Land in his right. like right wing accelerationism. It's not surprising. Uh, it's not a surprise. He, he, he thinks there's a bigger shift than I think there is. I think all it took was, you know, Shanghai and, and uh, a lot of drugs to finally push the natural tendency, the right-wing tendencies of that thought out to what it is. But yeah, I mean, like, I, I think if you like Michael DeLanda, it, there's a right-wing turn. I also think there's an institutional turn. One of the things that I find frustrating about liberal Foucauldians is these people can agree that like everything is basically a, an institutional prison and then they go on to spend their lives building posed better versions of those institutions. <laughs> and it's like, did you read yeah, right. this as a instruction manual? Like, <laughs> But there's so much of that in, in academia with these thinkers in particular. And I think that's because their project kind of got stalled out too. Deconstructionism's project doesn't seem inherently political. Right. Um, I mean, at an abstract level, I think, but... 
Yeah. It's, I mean, that's like a 30,000 foot <laughs> abstraction. Right. I mean, like, it, like it seems political in that it's a kind of anti-politic because if you don't believe in grand narratives at all, um, and you want to deconstruct them all, all po- almost all politics is some kind of narrative. The post-structuralists are a little better, but they do seem to, there does seem to be a, a right-wing move in a lot of their thought. And then in the, like in the nineties and early aughts, when you and I were in this, it just, it just felt like we were arguing over Arcana. Like the, the debates that were like it, about the death of the author or some were more dominant than any of the political yeah. implications in it. And yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's part of why there was a backlash against it by the late aught. Like yeah. not, not all post-structuralism, but definitely like deconstruction and to like, and like, you know, a lot of also like the weird post post-structuralist, like kind of social Democrats, like LaClau and then, you know, are like, Habermas, you know, taking oh, uh, <laughs> Habermas oh, taking um, you know, a Frankfurt School critical theory into like the most liberal form possible. I mean, like, I get kind of why it's stalled out. Do you think maybe at the end of this time, because I think I think this time period is going to look weird in about ten years. Yeah. Um, you know, the birth of fro- of Mustache Man and Frog Twitter is going to like be like, what the hell were we all on? Um, <laughs> I mean, Deleuze, Deleuze and Guattari are still very much maybe it's just the aesthetics of, of twitter or online that no, really, I do you listen know like there's a certain like libidinal you know what i mean there's kind of a like flash and and libidinal element that i think attracts a lot of people to, but that's like deleuze is super pop at least in the circles that i'm frequenting like i mean maybe that's confirmation bias to a degree but deleuze is super popular when we when we when zero books did a jordan peterson thing i was actually taking tick marks on how much Deleuze was referenced. Part of that, I think, is the nature of Deleuze because, De, you know, Deleuze's work is deliberately not coherent. Like, each each work is almost a discrete set of tools and, you know, like, applied metaphors and whatnot. And some of them are brilliant and some of them, I think, are nuts. Like, some of what they do metaphorically with, like, the MCM circuit and marks, I'm like, but, um, like, that doesn't apply to that, brah. But other things, like, I think, like, their points about, like, ribosomic um, structures versus centralized structures and, like, brittle. From a post-structuralist perspective, get to something that, like, like, very mathematical systems theorists also get to about, like, efficient but brittle, inefficient but robust systems. And, like, Deleuze figured that out from just a metaphor. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I sometimes consider myself an anti-Deleuzean. That's what I was when you told me what you what you believe. I'm like, you want me to come on? I guess because I know this stuff. But I mean, I, I I'm <laughs> I'm interested in Deleuze and Guattari. Maybe Guattari a bit bit more than Deleuze. I think specifically. Guattari is a brilliant maniac. Yeah, and I mean, I love that element, and I think one aspect of I think Deleuze gets painted with a reactionary brush a lot because of probably like Nick Land is a big right. part of that. But I think. The what that sti- what that's stemming like, from is his his focus on Nietzsche as an influence. Right. So well, I think that bubbles up quite a well, bit. But, but what's interesting is who gets a pass on Nietzsche. Like the Frankfurt School focus on Nietzsche, and I guess like sometimes people might imply Adorno and Horkheimer were reactionaries, but he doesn't come up as much. Um, what about Marcuse? I'm very interested in in Marcuse, even though he you know worked. With the CIA or what OSS, which I he worked with the OSS. Well, all the Frankfurt schoolers worked with the OSS. The interesting, if you want to go interesting into that, though, um, there's actually a book that I read it about poetry about what the what the OSS and the CIA were good at doing. So one of my favorite things, if you read like the 
the program, there's a, a book on the, how the MFA at Iowa is actually funded by the CIA. But people also, like, I, like, so, like um, thank you for bothering me. Uh, what's his name? Boots Riley, right? Boots Riley, yeah. Went over this conspiracy, like conspiracy, and it's a real conspiracy. Like they funded the MFA to, get, yeah. to kind of break up uh, funded, politically adjacent. They funded Foucault, I believe, quite yeah. a bit as well. But they funded everybody. So the other thing that the OSS would do is like the OSS would then fund um, anti-communists who were protesting the arts movements coming out of the MFA program and the abstract <laughs> arts movements as communism because what the OSS like the OSS and the CIA were doing was trying to get foot into everything. Yeah. So, you know, they, if they could get a Stalinist party, they, they would, and then they did. I mean like COINTELPRO is the FBI doing that. I mean like, I mean, so like, CPUSA, right? Yeah. The CPUSA and the, and the RCP were full of feds. Um, uh, the publisher I worked for, produced a book called heavy radicals the sequel to it was actually released by um by repeater books but uh about like how the the um how many COINTELPRO feds were in the rcp what's interesting about though that like that though is like most of what those COINTELPRO people did was actually accelerate already existing divisions they didn't actually do that much when they screwed up people got killed so like when they would like work with local law enforcement and not be control of things as usually it's when some yahoo local cop would shoot someone so that did happen the only time COINTELPRO really went all out balls to the wall i'm going to kill your ass was on the panthers <laughs> because they think they saw the panthers as more legitimately dangerous but yeah everybody was full of feds and you know who else was full of feds the american nazi party was full of COINTELPRO feds um the nation of islam was brought, was full of feds everybody was full of feds that's uh that's forgotten about too but yeah the so what what would you when you say marcuse worked for the oss they were trying to fight fascist and they were also diversifying their resources so i don't think it was like there are even leftists who kind of believe like judeo-bolshevik conspiracies about the oss and um the frankfurt school and also like postmodernism is somehow a, a ca conspiracy <laughs> and i'm like well like the ca also like helped Ho Chi Minh they helped Pol Pot they they like they like they helped Castro and then also tried to kill him like they were on all sides of everything because they were just trying to control it and if it was like a diverse like if you have your guy in there no matter what side wins you have a pool that was their that was their strategy right that makes um, sense yeah so so I mean even yeah. like I said with me like let's say if Foucault was CIA funded well he sort of influenced me to be an anarchist in, in a way so you know it's kind of like that tele, teleos or teleos yeah, doesn't quite <laughs> doesn't quite work it out does sometimes it does sometimes make you almost go folk, folk magic hegelian dialectics like <laughs> exactly um like <laughs> like uh william berkeley creating the national review and then create you know and yeah uh, getting in with these anti-communists to form you know, to like legitimize the saner parts of the birchers which eventually like over time to get like when neoconservatism becomes unpopular it degrades into like the tea party and so that shit is just constant in american history the oss was like from like the end of the from the end of world war ii until the 70s was pretty much all over the place it's actually kind of amazing that they had that kind of resources yeah so yeah so yeah that's interesting so but i don't think that's why the right would turn happened i think i think the right would turn happened from getting stalled out and a lot of these people died before their work was really totally completed the exception kind of is derrida i mean if you think about your 
your your high period like post 68 or um post structuralist he's the only one that died like within our living memory kind of i mean i get like i guess I Foucault 04. was technically alive when you and i well, at least i was alive but not for very long <laughs> like, uh, i was definitely not aware i think Foucault died in 95 or yeah four yeah let me look that up um i he died he he died before i was really conscious of these sort of things oh yeah definitely um, yeah, i was like i wasn't until i was like a 18 or in college before i had ever heard of any 84 of he died in 84 oh, so, oh, yeah, yeah so like right. he died when i was four years old so like yeah um early aids death i believe yeah that's what it was he was a he was like a before we even really knew what aids was he was an aids death and um was it Deleuze died? Deleuze was already pretty much dead by by the time I was in college. Yeah, I think Deleuze was like eighty eight, maybe eighty nine. Yeah. So the Guitari only person ninety two, I think. Yeah, Guattari was ninety two. I think the only person who died late enough, for, like Altusser, Altusser died. Um, I guess the people who from this time period who were still alive late enough for us to see them kind of fade out was Derrida and, and then like the, uh, the operismo Marxist who were also post-structuralists like um, Nigiri and, and Hart um, and people like that. So, yeah. So it's, it's interesting that your, a lot of your key figures died young ish. I mean, Deleuze wasn't that young, but Foucault was. And so that gets stalled out and their research programs were not completely finished. I don't think when they really began. And they also like don't have as many acolytes in their own country in their own language as they do. You know, and the other thing I think of is weird about like Foucault, for example, is like Foucaultianism was huge when I was in grad school and in undergrad, but also so little of Foucault was completely translated even then. Like none of the Saborn lectures really were, or most like most of them still weren't yet. A lot of Madness and Civilization hadn't been released in full. Um, in English, we had abridged versions of a lot of the books. And so it was actually weird to me like that Foucault was as big as he was, how long it was to get a lot of that stuff fully translated into English. I mean, I know French is not a particularly hard language for, for English academics to learn. It's not like, you know, Swahili yeah. or something, but it's, it's still, like, it took a while. It's often surprised. There's often, like, Gramsci's popularity um, in English academia is actually weird like that because the prison notebooks aren't completely translated, you know, are we, do we even know all that we're talking about in yeah. relation to this author? Seriously. Um, so, yeah. I've been doing a, actually through Twitter, believe it or not, I have ever, we've become really good friends now uh, is a guy that actually translated Watari's machinic unconscious into English. Oh. And so we're in the, pro I'm in the process of like, we're going chapter by chapter through that on kind of a deep dive. So one of the only post-structural um, thinkers that I think of that's really been blossoming late in the English-speaking world and hasn't really had the staying point that I would have thought was Laurel, Franz Perrault Laurel. Oh, yeah. He, 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 he kind of had a flash of brief popularity in the early 2010s. Same guy translated, uh, I think, what is it? Non, non-philosophy? I have Yeah, non-philosophy. The non-philosophy and anti-Badu. And, and, I mean, honestly, I think he was popular partly for the streak of Badu. Philosophy and non-philosophy. Which I haven't, I haven't had a chance to dig into, but uh, I kind of, I'm enticed by that kind of obscurantist turn a little bit. I don't know. Yeah. He's fun. I do plan on doing some episodes at some point on, on that. Now, as far as guitar, I don't know him as well as I'd like to. Although when I read Chaosophy, which I read like, prof, I think man, I may have read that in undergrad. It was probably like 2001. It was like six or seven years after it was came out in English. That book is crazy. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's brilliant, but it's nutty. 
I mean, you get you you get the idea with Guitari that you had an like over funkin mind, and when Deluge, you have almost like a pragmatist or something like. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I I, I often think maybe Guitari would be better understood by people studying Guitari as opposed to just studying Deluge and Guitari. But I know. Yeah. The anti epipus and a thousand plateaus have been like the the primary text for both of them like forever. For sure. Machinic Unconscious covers a lot of the same ground as, as A Thousand Plateaus. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think they were sort of working on, he was working on that at the same time. So there's a tremendous amount of overlap. Is that related to the Machinic Eros stuff that was also recently translated? or I think Machinic Eros was, I may be wrong about this, but I think that was more so, he went to Japan and it's sort of a, I think it's less the- theory heavy than... Mm-hmm kind of a bio- biographical narrative. He did also, what's interesting, I didn't even realize this until a, a couple of months ago, is that he went to Brazil in the 80s and hung out with uh, Lula da Silva. Oh, cool. Before he was Good. president, yeah. But cool. There's like a huge book to dive into as far as that goes that I'm interested in. I probably need to head out in a second. So do you have any other questions you'd like to ask before I go? Um, there was one from the book that I uh, was okay actually, let me grab my I haven't actually talked very much <laughs> I know we talked like which is fine I mean just it was just really like lines of flight to kind of jump off of but um there was one I think it was ask Asger Jorn had mm-hmm. this idea that I thought was really compelling is I think his critique was that it, it's not surplus value that's extracted by capitalism it's surplus it's it's time, right. which I think is to me that makes tremendous amount of sense. Well, surplus value is dependent on on um, on the extraction of labor time. So in some ways, like that, that is not of the kind of more it's unorthodox readings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the more unorthodox readings of Marxist. That one's actually not something that isn't our like kind of implied. Um, unlike people who do surplus value, like Bataille does, when he kind of conflates like monetary value with like other kinds of values, that one is implied in the value in the value form that Marx talks about. I mean, time time is what you extract. You extract right. labor time, so the labor and time are extracted together. So yeah, I mean, in, in if you like, even in like standard bourgeois history and sociology, the standardization and formalization of time is totally related to capitalism. Like that, like. Like even capitalist historians agree with that. So, you know, before that time was basically set by like whatever local sundial said. And like, then you'd set the clock to that and that was what you did. And that was different from city to city. So, yeah. (laughs) So yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a very interesting thing. I mean, I think the situationists are almost like the structure, the like Australian structuralist in the sense that they take, they take Marx and read it through a lens very, very carefully. In fact, I think they read them more carefully than some of those, than like Althusser does. Althusser only based a lot of his observations and his big works on like nine works of Marx. Um, but they, they also read other stuff into it and it kind of breaks some of it open. I'm not always sure it breaks it open in ways that are actually helpful, but right. breaks a lot of it open and was able to articulate like a Marxist vision that was something other than the like Khrushchevite, position of the french communist party that was stultifying to a lot of people yeah i think that that largely covers pretty well covers everything i wanted to get to unless you have uh, maybe some thoughts what do you what is your take okay so you mentioned baudrillard might be a bit reactionary i think, I think he's brilliant now 
Like, oh, I mean, I for me, I one of the kind of moments, I mean, I was somewhat, so from like grad school to about to 2016, I just, once it became clear, you know, as, as a liberal at this time that Obama, even before the election, I kind of saw, okay, this was, this is kind of bullshit. So oh, I yeah. Became, I was, I was totally disillusioned from politics and I was just like, fuck this. This is, all I'm doing is making myself feel bad. But me, me and you both actually, but like when I was getting out of my paleoconservative period and kind of becoming Marxist adjacent, I went to this brief period where I was like, well, let's see what this Obama thing is promising change. I, I was actually a Gravel supporter. Yeah. Oh, I, I ended up, <laughs> I ended up writing in Ron Paul in 2008. <laughs> so so that, I was a that gives you where I was at, but that was more like, I just want to get legal weed, man. Just, and just let me get high. And entered the uh, Libertarian <laughs> Party when he lost the Democratic, because I actually never have been a member of the Democratic Party, um, but um, I temporarily entered the Libertarian Party when Gravel, when he lost the Democratic nomination, went into the Libertarian Party to run against Bob Barr, I believe. Anyway, <laughs> I, when, when Gravel failed, I was like, oh, I'll give Obama a chance, whatever. I mean, first black president, it'd be cool. He comes out of nowhere. Maybe he'll bring some new people in. Yeah. And I lost faith immediately after, but between the election day before he even took office, because I saw his cabinet and I was like, "You're not bringing right. anyone new in, but maybe Van Jones." I remember when he capitulated early on. Even like I said, this was pre, even before the election, the FISA court warrants. That was like a big thing right. for me at the time. And once he kind of capitulated or like um, stepped back on, on that stance, I was kind of like, "Eh, fuck this guy." Yeah. So. Yeah, I was an Obama critic before, back when Obama mania was still on its height. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think a lot of us were, ra- I think I think people underestimate the mediocrity of Obama's presidency as a radicalization factor for a lot of people. Um, although Trump definitely accelerated that like dramatically. Oh, um, in a way that's interesting because what the Bush years did was push people into the Democratic Party and what this Trump years have done, I'm not quite sure actually right. so it feels like maybe they have pushed people into a democratic party but by itself but by also like people thought they were being super radical at the same time so exactly yeah it's 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 strange but um but yeah, yeah. 2016 so, was kind of like a moment when i woke up maybe around because i i wasn't even i wasn't pay, even paying attention to the election or like the trump clinton mm-hmm. camp none of it until maybe like two weeks <laughs> ahead of the election. And then once he's elected, I was like, I kind of woke up one night and I was like, spoke one word and that word was Baudrillard. (laughs) I've been, that's the trajectory I've been on since probably 2016 was getting back into this world. Yeah. Some, um, simulation on Simon Lacker is a very important book. Um, as is the Iraq war didn't exist or (laughs) didn't happen. Those books are, are vital. I do think Baudrillard eventually gives up on, on reason in a way that you can't really be. I mean, because most postmodernists are not actually irrationalist. They just, you know, don't necessarily believe that human animals are naturally rational, but they might not believe that human animals are naturally anything. Yeah. Baudrillard sort of like understood a kind of irrationalism that I think if you internalize and normalize will actually make you very conservative, but he's also so insightful to the way society yes. actually works and the I way mean, the images work. That's his value. I think ultimately yeah. is in that. I mean, it's, and you know, you know, he's also a burnt former communist and it shows. And uh, I think that has to be taken into account when people read him. But I, I also think, yeah, I mean, he's also one of the post structuralist figures who lived long enough for us to read him as adults. 
even though his you know most important work was in the late seventies, early eighties, but still, you know, I, I'm going to be interested if um, Baudrillard, because you know, for me, Baudrillard and believe it or not, a completely different kind of thinker, Christopher Lash, were the two people I turned to to explain what happened with Trump. Even though I was also one of the people who thought Trump could win, I didn't think I didn't think he was going to. I'm not claiming that, but I I was like, it's possible he could pull off an electoral college victory. All it takes is some working class people staying home in one state. Yeah. Like, so, you know, then I, I told people that they shouldn't underestimate Hillary dislike or, or the fact that there might be a cost to, to Obama not delivering on so many yes, promises. Exactly. Those two uh, things combined, the Hillary dislike and the sort of, yeah. Obama. I mean, it sh- like it shouldn't have shocked us. It also shouldn't have shocked us when we thought about the way population distributions have moved in the United States in a way that like Republicans have like a five point advantage on the on the Electoral College now. So like you, you don't just have to be popular. You have to be really, really yeah. popular kind of to sunbelt your weird sunbelt spread. That's um, what you're kind of getting at, right? The, right. I mean, like if every if, if California and New York are the two most populous places, but they're even adjusting for their they're just going to be underrepresented. And so particularly in the electoral college. So like, there's not there, you have to deal with that. It's one of the things that I think all leftists actually need to really start thinking about is how to appeal to frankly, people from backgrounds like yours and mine who, who come out of like the deracinated exurban um, sunbelt um, because, you know, whether it's electorally or, or, or just getting people to, you know, like if you, you know, if you don't believe in electoral politics at all to get people to like form intentional communities, those people have to be part of it. Yeah. And um, we haven't really addressed that. And I, I don't think it's being addressed even now. I, I mean, like I do think the social democratic turn that the Democrats bait and switched us with <laughs> right. that sheepdog shit that does offer something to them. But right now, I mean, you know, I, I predict that Biden's going to win, but only because of utter catastrophe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, not and, for And me. then maybe. And then even may, like. Yeah. And it's still like, even with an 11 point spread now, it still might not happen. So, yeah. you know, there were days where I'm like, are we even going to have a country by November? Like, and do I care? No. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> all right. This has been fun, man. And yeah. If, hell yeah. I enjoyed it. I um, loved it, man. Thank you so much. You want to plug some stuff? Uh, you're, oh, you're, yeah. um, you're still doing I'm symptomatic a, redness, right? I No, actually, I do you pop do the left. Um, pop with, the and left. symptomatic redness comes on as a supplement. They're all zero books properties. Um, some of that stuff is behind a payroll, unfortunately. I also work for the Emancipation Network, um, which is a, a scientific Marxist collective. With um, And I sometimes appear on From Alpha to Omega reading series. I'm also a regular guest. I'm From Alpha to Omega. Um, I appear on, um, I am the co-host of Mortal Science, which is a, which is a podcast on hyper obscure shit. Um, <laughs> nice. it's philosophy. It's, we call it before and after Marxism. I'll have to check that um, out. And we go into like analytical Marxism, um, pre Marxist anthropology, uh, things that Marx either brackets out or doesn't deal with. Like it's a lot. It's also like, what is science after, you know, after demarcation wars and what science is now? Stuff like that. Poet, I have a book out. Um, I'm writing a book on Christopher Lash with another scholar, uh, Salem Bontine. That's nowhere near out yet. Um, so yeah, that's my stuff. Oh, I edited a literary journal, Former People, but it's currently on hiatus. 
All right. <laughs> that about covers it up. You're going to do something with my friends at Red Library soon, right? Yes, I am. I'm going nice. to do something on a 70, on an early Christopher Lash text that no, most people have not read, critiquing um, 60s American radicalism. It's, uh, nice. So it's a book called uh, A World of Nations. I'm in Austin. They are as oh, well. Oh, so you know so those guys. I know those guys. Yeah, yeah. We've, uh, we, yeah. we hang out, hang out from time to time. We've gone like shotguns out at my Oh, that's fun, man. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, they know me from, you know, um, like I like to call it the, the goth Trotsky network, <laughs> but, um, from, uh, the, you know, those post trots over at regrettable century. I'm friends with those guys and, oh, nice. okay. um, Jeremy and, uh, Christopher unpronounceable last name. <laughs> Their last name's more Slavic than mine. So yeah. Enjoyed the hell out of the discussion today. And, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it too. Yeah. This was awesome. But, uh, this will be the machine of unconscious happy hour with Cooper Cherry signing off. Thanks again, Derek. I, this was awesome. It was so much fun. It's like nice to just riff a little bit and not have to like be digging into Watari's fucking like dense yeah. prose. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was great. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Enjoy your weekend. You too. Tell me when it's out and I'll plug it for you. For sure. Yeah, I'll definitely. I'll. I'll All right. Yeah. Thanks again. Thank Thanks. Bye. This is the. violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.